Today is the start of Advent, of our celebration of Advent here in Lanesville, and it is, in fact, the Sunday in which we celebrate the hope that we have in Christ. Remember last month we just concluded a sermon series that Pete and I had gone through called The Heart of Darkness, where we were looking at times of seeming lack of hope, of a seeming lack of peace and love and joy in the lives of Abraham, Gideon, David, and Samuel. Well, this month we'll be contrasting that seeming darkness that we see in this world with the brilliance of the light of the world who has come into this world on that first advent. And as such, today we'll start our new sermon series called The Brilliance of Faith, looking today at the brilliance of hope that we have in Christ Jesus. To do this, I want to look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. I'll be using the Pew Bible. It's on page 848 in the Pew Bible. If you remember, as you're turning there, to our contrasting sermon last month, I made the point that God uses times of seeming hopelessness to remind us of our greater hope in Him. Now, I don't need to belittle that point. Braden just gave us great examples of times of seeming hopelessness where God reminded us of our greater hope. But last month, we looked at the story of Abraham and Sarah when they devise a plan with their maidservant Hagar to have, a, an, to have an heir through her instead of waiting and trusting in God's promise to come true. And we saw that although the story was messy, that in the end, God found them in their hopeless situation, reminded them of their great hope in them, and chapters later, we saw Abraham and Sarah, and Hagar, and Ishmael, and Isaac, all redeemed in this great story of hope. And it's this reality of our true hope that we have in Christ that I want us to look at this morning from our text in Hebrews 6. Specifically, I want us to see that true hope is an anchor for our soul. So let's see what this text has to offer us this morning as we think through the fact that true hope is in fact an anchor for our soul. Again, we're in Hebrews 6. We'll read verses 13 to 20. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word this morning. We thank you for the great hope that we have in Christ. May our hearts and our minds be opened to what your text has for us. And may we come to realize the great anchor of our soul that is the hope we have in Christ. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So for those of you who come to uh, Bible study on Wednesday, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews. And you know, and, and I'll remind us all here, that the book of Hebrews is written to a group of former Jews who have come to know Christ, but as a wave of persecution has come, as times of struggle and trial have come into their lives, they're starting to wonder if God's promise in Christ really is good. They're starting to wonder whether or not they really should trust in Jesus as the Messiah, and many of them are actually going back to their old Jewish roots. And again, we see some of that here in chapter 6, and we see here the author showing them the certainty of God's promises as he wants them to inherit them through faith in Jesus. He does that in three ways that I want to see this morning. First, he opens up this passage by reminding them of the example of Abraham. Again, it was no accident that a month ago we looked at the life of Abraham as an example and a prototype of hope, because even here the author of Hebrews uses Abraham as this example of faithful endurance. In verses 13 to 15 in our text here, the author reminds us of the promise that God had made to Abraham in Genesis 22. We remember this is the chapter where Abraham is instructed to sacrifice Isaac. And as he's about to do it, God stops him. He offers the ram caught in the thicket. And he makes this promise to Abraham and showing also Abraham's patience in waiting for that promise. But we have to ask, as the original readers had to, what does the promise to Abraham by God have to do with the hope that they, and subsequently we have today? Well, first, this covenant with Abraham was one in which God promised unilaterally to fulfill it. And what I mean by that is that this was completely unconditional on the part of Abraham. Right? In that original covenant, Abraham only had to receive the promise through his belief that God could and would bring it to fulfillment. And that is why Scripture talks about in the Old Testament and a little bit in the New Testament of Abraham's faith being accredited to him as righteousness. It was not about what he did in order to receive this covenant. Instead, it was about trusting in what God would do. Just as our hope in God is all a result of his faithfulness to us, we too are counted righteous in the eyes of God through the faith we have that God can and will do all that he has promised to do. So the first similarity is that God promises alone unilaterally to fulfill this promise to Abraham. But second, he shows us this example to show us Abraham's hope was characterized by great patience, and so too is ours. As we remember, Abraham had to wait 25 years from the first promise of God for a son to the time when Isaac was actually born. But he's a true picture of hope for us because he only received the beginning of its fulfillment of that promise with the birth of Isaac. He did not actually live to see all the promise of God fulfilled in his time. Right? We remember God had promised that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky. Well, here he is at 100 years old with one true son. Right? He was promised that his descendants would be a light to the nations, a blessing to others. Well, here he is in a foreign land that's not Jewish by any stretch of the imagination. 
So we see here that the author of, of Hebrews here wants to use Abraham as a great example of hope in that he received a small portion of the promise of God, but it was in that small portion that he was, that he was able to understand and trust and believe the hope that would come through Christ and would come later. So Abraham's a picture of hope in this text because like us, he's given, us, he's given a foretaste of the true hope that he will experience in the future, one that is completely fulfilled by God alone. And in a way, he's using Abraham as an example and, an, and an, as an explanation to the question of when in reference to our hope. When will we receive this hope from God? And he answers, it's both now and in the future. We too are a people of hope after the example of Abraham, since we have been given salvation through Christ, which is a foretaste of what we will experience when he comes again to redeem the world. Even Steve said that in his call to worship this morning. You know, this is a foretaste of what we are really, truly looking forward to as the people of God. You see, when we believe in Christ, we are given God's Holy Spirit, which Paul calls the down payment or the seal of our salvation. We know just as when we put a down payment on a house or a down payment on a car, it's a, it's a promise. It's the initial payment of something that's promising that we will one day pay the rest off, that we will one day bring it to completion. Well, the Holy Spirit is for the people of God that down payment, that seal, that promise to us of God saying, look, here is hope for you here and now, but it's not done yet. The Holy Spirit is the down payment that shows us that the hope that we experience now is just a foretaste of the greater hope that we will experience in heaven. And you see, it's through the Holy Spirit that the church is actually supposed to be a people of hope now and in the future. We are supposed to kind of be a glimpse into what heaven is supposed to look like, right? Through the Holy Spirit, we live as the people of God here in this place with this great hope. And it's supposed to be a glimpse of what people are to expect when they come to trust God, when they no longer live for themselves, right? We read out of Philippians 2 in our call to worship, just like Christ did not live for himself but considered himself nothing. He counted himself um, his, his God nature as nothing compared to taking on humanity for us, so too do we now live as the people of God here, not caring about ourselves alone, but caring about others, and living in such a way that the kingdom of God is being seen in our lives. So as the people of God, we are called to fight injustice. We are supposed to be taking care of the sick and the hurting. We are supposed to be caring for those who are mourning. And as such, it's the Spirit is that is giving us a glimpse into what our lives in heaven is to be like. We don't do it perfectly. We never will. But we sit here as the people of God, living on this side of heaven as we anticipate the fulfillment of that when Christ comes again. So if you're questioning whether or not the hope that is promised by God will come to be, Look around and remember that the way that we live as the people of God is supposed to be the evidence that the Spirit is in fact the down payment of the future hope that we will experience. So Abraham in this text is a great example of faithful endurance and hope for us as disciples of Jesus since he too experienced only a glimpse of the full reality 
of God's promises that were yet to be fulfilled in the end. But the author takes it one step further in our text this morning, right? He says, The example of Abraham, their father in faith, was only relevant insofar as the promises of God could be trusted. So, the second thing he shows them here in verses 16 and 17 is that he shows them the surety of God. He shows them the surety of God. He shows them in these verses that the relevance of the oath sworn to Abraham to them lies in the proof that God is absolutely trustworthy in the act of promising. Sure, Abraham was a man of great hope and a man of great faithfulness, but was that hope that he trusted in reliable for them to also trust in? And here the author answers unashamedly, yes. He writes, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. You see, at that time, in Jewish custom, if you were to swear by an oath, the most supreme oath you could swear was, as surely as Yahweh lives, I will do X, Y, or Z. Likewise, we hear today, people will say, as God is my witness, I will do this thing for you. Or if you've ever seen people in court or been in court yourself, you put your hand on the Bible and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Here the author of Hebrews is showing us that when we make an oath to be true to our word, we typically do so by making an oath to someone greater than ourselves. God, Yahweh, etc. But here he actually shows, and by, well, let me say, by doing that, we symbolically are saying, if I am not faithful to my word, may... God, Yahweh, do to me whatever is just, right? I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, but nothing, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And if I don't, so help me God. But the author here says, God, in making an oath, has no one greater than himself to swear by. He doesn't need to do so, since he himself is God. But he does so still make this oath almost as a way to make double good his promises to us, and in order to accommodate to us our desired confirmation of an oath. In other words, when God swears to do something, he does not need to confirm his trustworthiness to us. But he does so anyway by making oaths and covenants with us so that we would believe without a doubt that he is good to his word. And the greatest example of this is, in fact, coming out of the life of Abraham, back in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God is making this covenant with Abraham, and he tells him to take a heifer, a goat, a ram, and cut them in half, and to take a turtle dove and a pigeon and put them on either side as well. And this seems strange to us today, but the custom was that the the ones who were making the oath would do that, and they would walk through the middle of these animals, And it was a symbolic way of saying, if we are not good to our word, may what's happened to those animals happen to us. But notice in Genesis 15, who's making the claim. Because God is making the covenant with him. He's making the oath with them. 
and it's he who walks through the middle of the animals. Abraham never walks through the, the animals. It's God who is making this oath, who passes through the animals, again as a way of saying, if I do not keep my word, may I be torn apart like these animals. And again, this is, this is the unilateral covenant between Abraham and God. God will do everything. Abraham just has to trust and believe. And yet God takes all responsibility for failure, even failure on the part of Abraham and his descendants. You could say that after explaining the when of our hope in 15 and 16, he now moves to the how in reference of our hope. How do we receive this hope? We, like Abraham, get to be inheritors of these great promises and the eternal hope of God that is set before us as we trust in God and believe in the work of his Son to do all that he has promised to do. Our God has sent our Savior, Jesus, whose new covenant is a result of His blood and is for no other reason than His steadfast covenantal love for us. Blood indeed has been shed as a result of failure in the original covenant, but it's not our own as it should have been. No, instead our failure led to His being torn on our behalf. But although we indeed have failed on our end of the covenant, God's promises are always true and, are now rece- and, and now we receive a salvation and a great hope that we do not deserve because of God's work through Christ alone. So the author shows that they are to be people of hope through the example of patient endurance from Abraham and as a result of the certainty of God's promises which he has double confirmed to us over and over again. The promise given to Abraham, proven by the certainty of God's promises to us, result in the final thing he wants them to see regarding the inheritance that awaits them. The third thing he shows them in this text is he shows them the hope of Christ. He says in verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things, he's referring to the promise to Abraham and the oath that he's made, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Our hope is in the unchangeable nature and promises of God. He uses Abraham's example and the reminder of the surety of God's promises to encourage us who are refugees who have sought asylum and ultimate deliverance from God to hold fast to the hope that is set before us no matter what. I say this can be seen as the why of our hope. Why trust in the hope of God? We trust in the hope of God because He is unchanging and He has offered refuge for those who have realized that everything else in this world is a sinking ship compared to the hope that we have in Him. John Calvin says it like this. He says, We flee to him as refugees, throwing off all other defense except the promise to lay hold of the hope set before us. You remember, the recipients of this letter needed the reminder that Abraham also suffered in faith, waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled, yet was a man of great hope. They also needed the reminder that God is true to his word, particularly in what he did through Christ, especially when life seemed to not be going the way that they had hoped. 
But the author of Hebrews continues here in verses 19 to 20, saying, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. John MacArthur says here, Our hope is embodied in Christ, who has entered into God's presence in the heavenly holy of holies on our behalf. You see, our hope is not just a general desire to see something happen. I know we talk about this every year when we come to this Sunday. You know, the hope we have is not just a a general, man, I really hope something happens. Instead, our hope is personal. Our hope is intrinsically linked to the person and the work of Jesus. William Lane helpfully reminds us that in Hebrews, the word hope never describes a subjective attitude. Right? It's never about hopefulness or something along those lines. But instead, it always denotes the objective content of the hope consisting of present and future salvation. Our hope lies objectively in the person of Jesus who has come, become our high priest, who has opened to us the presence of God And like the priesthood of Melchizedek, Jesus' is now universal, it's royal, it's righteous, it's peaceful, and praise God, it's unending. So why trust in the hope that God has for us? Because he is faithful and unchanging, and because the hope is embodied in Jesus, whose first coming we begin to celebrate this Sunday that began the good work of hope in us and whose second advent we long for in expectancy as he will bring our full hope to completion. But all this begs the question that you are probably sitting here desperately waiting for. What is the hope that is set before us? Let me explain it in two parts. First, our hope in its present reality comes from the salvation that we experience through faith and the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes as a result. Right now, as we sit here this morning, our hope is that our sins are completely forgiven, that we have been adopted as sons and daughters united with our brother Jesus, and that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit whose presence allows us to begin to live lives in the kingdom of God. Again, I've talked a lot about this at our Wednesday morning Bible study. But when we come to know and trust Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit, and at that moment, our eternal lives begin. I think we we often misunderstand that once we come to know Jesus, we have Him, we have salvation, and now we just have to sit and wait until we die and go to heaven, until we can experience eternal life. But Scripture talks about the Holy Spirit, again, as that foretaste, as that down payment. It's like when we believe in trusting God, at that moment in our lives, our life with Jesus for eternity begins. And if we are to die before Christ returns, that death is merely a blip in our eternal lives. That death is merely something that we have to go through in order to receive our glorified bodies, in order to... to, um, be brought into the new heavens and the new earth. But our true hope is that Christ will come again before that and 
that the lives we live now in an instant will change. And the next step we take will be continuing on in our eternal life. The hope that we have now is the beginning of the hope that we have in the future. The lives that you're living now is the beginning of your eternal life in Christ. Again, we fight for these things in this world. We feed the hungry. We help the homeless. We you know, take care of those who are sick and hurting. Because this is what we are to experience in heaven. And we now are living a foretaste of what we will experience in heaven. So our hope in its present reality is the salvation that we experience, our adoption in the family of God, and the lives that we live as a result of our being a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's this reality that leads to the second part of our hope, the hope that we still wait for in its future fulfillment. It is our future hope that Christ, upon his return to rule and to reign as the rightful king and lord of this world, will come and wipe away every tear. He will defeat sin and death completely, and he will redeem this world to its original intention, free of pain, free of suffering, free of mourning, and free of sorrow. The foretaste of that future reality of hope is what we live now. But only God will bring it to its completion through the restoration of this world when the new heavens and the new earth become one and we live with God forever. The hope of Christ, or better yet, the hope that is Christ, is a real, personal, objective thing that we experience now in part as we wait for its future fulfillment as Christ, as, at Christ's second coming. And as we conclude our text, let, rem, let me remind you of the greatest reality of this hope as he describes it here in verse 19. He says, True hope, as we said before, is an anchor for our soul. If you understand hope, as Abraham did, as having a present and future reality, then the hope of God that is based on the certainty of God's promises will be a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. F.F. Bruce says it this way in his commentary on Hebrews. He says, Abraham rested his hope in the promise and oath of God, but we have more than that to rest our hope upon. We have the fulfillment of his promise and the exaltation of Christ. He is the forerunner of our future glorification. This hope, based on the promises of God, is our spiritual anchor. As we find ourselves moored to an immovable object, the throne of God himself. The hope that we have found in the person of Christ is the anchor of our soul that keeps us from being greatly moved by the circumstances of life. If you remember a month ago, I, I opened the sermon on a seeming lack of hope by quoting Tim Keller out of his new book, New Wear book, he writes books so quickly, um, called Making Sense of God. And he has a, a chapter there on hope. And in the beginning... I quoted him, he says, we are irreducibly hope-based creatures. That even when life seems hopeless, we are always searching for hope. And later in the chapter, he talks about the slaves who were brought over into the new world in America and the lives, the horrible lives they lived, but the fact that they were always singing spirituals to God. They were always trusting God, even in the terrible circumstances of their lives. And he says this about them. 
He says, why could nothing destroy their hope? It was because it was otherworldly. It was not based on any circumstances within the walls of this world. It lays in the future of God. And it's this otherworldliness of our hope in God that makes it so hard to believe at times, yet so satisfying when we do. I mean, it's the reason that J.R.R. Tolkien loved to write fairy tales. He actually says about his writing fairy tales, he says, the tales bring us joy because deep down we sense that they describe the world as it ought to be and what we were made for. You know, see, our true hope embodied in Christ, confirmed by the unchangeable faithfulness of God, is an anchor for our soul as it promises as its promises keep us grounded and anchored to the God of our salvation, even when the waves and storms of life threaten to drown us and destroy us. I love it. Again, I know I'm talking about Bible study a lot, but we're in Hebrews, and this is such a good book, and he uses a lot of nautical language in the book of Hebrews. And, and earlier we were reading, and we were reading in chapter, I think it's in chapter 2, he talks about, making sure that we're, we're, we uh, throw our anchor down so that we don't miss the, the harbor of Christ, is how he kind of talks about it. He says, don't miss in looking for salvation and looking for hope. Don't throw your anchor down in the wrong spot and end up in a different harbor. You think that you found salvation. To him, they're talk, he's talking about the Jewish system. He's talking about doing good works for God to be happy with them. He says, don't throw it down in the wrong spot. And here, he's showing that the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that's already been fulfilled in Jesus' first advent that we're celebrating and that we long for in his second advent, is the thing that if we throw our anchor down into, will keep us, as F.F. Bruce said, moored to an immovable object. Brothers and sisters, I have thrown my anchor down into many things in this world thinking that I could find hope and I have been destroyed every single time. And I would say to you, if you are struggling to find hope this morning, throw your anchor into the hope that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Throw your anchor down into the immovable object that is God's throne room where Christ sits now on our behalf and he holds the promises of God in his hands ready to bring them completion for each one of us. Throw your anchor down Do not be rocked to and fro by Satan and the world, but remember that true hope in Christ is an anchor for our soul. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this hope that we have in you. We thank you for the foretaste of it that we can experience now in the salvation that you've given us, in the Holy Spirit that you've gifted us, And Lord, we know that that is just the beginning of the great hope we have in you. When life gets tough, when the waves of this world rock us back and forth, may people only see that our ship is unmoving. May they ask us, why are you not thrown about? And may we show them the anchor that is thrown deep down into the your promises that have kept us grounded in you for many years and for years to come. May this hope be an anchor for our soul 
in every time and every circumstance that makes us want to question whether or not you are good to us, Lord. May we look to see where our anchor is and remember that you care deeply for us and you will redeem this world that we so much long for when you come again. Lord Jesus, come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.